So John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, is what they're using in Sunday school. That's second week in Christmas reading. We're reading the Epiphany Day, which comes from Matthew chapter 2. Jesus is born in chapter 1 in this gospel. Here's what happens next. The Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the second chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy, and on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure cap tress, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. The Gospel of the Lord. Good king. Bad king. Magi kings. Jesus king. Good king. So Joanne was just reading from the newspaper. We don't get a lot of contemporary news accounts in the Bible, but one place where we do get a contemporary news account is is Luke chapter 13. And what's going on there is that people are asking Jesus, if something bad happens to somebody, is that a punishment from God? And Jesus says, no, it's not a punishment from God. A lot of times it's a consequence of other things that are happening. And he cites two contemporary news examples. Sometimes bad things happen because of mistakes that get made. And he says, haven't you heard of what happened when the Tower of Siloam collapsed? 18 people were killed. Apparently it was under construction. Were those people any worse than the others? Were they being punished? No, is Jesus' conclusion. And then his other example is sometimes we human beings do bad things to each other. And he says, haven't you heard of how, how uh, some of the people who were offering their sacrifices in the temple had their blood mingled with their sacrifices by Pilate? And apparently what he's referring to, and this would have been pretty spectacular news in that time, is that Pilate, the governor, uh, who we will meet in the Passion Narrative, 
uh, apparently had his, his uh, you know, security services had tracked down some anti-Roman revolutionaries uh, in the temple as they were offering sacrifices and had them executed there. Now that really would have been news because across the Mediterranean world, the temples were understood as sanctuaries. I mean, in the original use of the word sanctuary, if you were there, you were safe. You could not be arrested. You could not be killed. But as we will find in the Passion narrative, Pilate is not exactly sensitive to religious sensibilities. And when his guys find uh, these people, he wipes them out, even though they are offering sacrifices in the temple. Jesus says, didn't you hear of those guys whose blood got mingled with their sacrifices? Were they worse than anybody else? No. It wasn't a punishment from God. And so that's where that set of stories goes. But that phrase where he mentions the the blood of the the people who are killed is an interesting kind of negative uh, or reverse reflection of what Danita was reading when she read Psalm 72 as the second lesson. So Psalm 72, by tradition, is written by King Solomon, thought to be the wisest of the kings of Israel. One of the reasons he's thought to be the wisest of the kings is... is, uh, when he becomes king, God kind of gives him the genie in the bottle thing. God says, ask for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And so Solomon could have asked for you know, power, for money, whatever. And instead, what he asks for is the wisdom to wisely guide his people. And God says, that's the perfect prayer, and grants it to him. And so by tradition, he is this wise king. And... And uh, by tradition, he's said to have written this psalm, a coronation psalm, which lists up the, the essential role of the king. And the interesting thing about the role of the king in that psalm is that for his coronation, all of these visiting dignitaries will come, these people of wealth and influence and power from the east and from the west and all over the place. And as impressive and awesome as that is, the king's obligation remains to be attentive to the needs of the unseen, the poor, the needy, the weak, the oppressed, to take their side and to never forget about that because precious is their blood in his sight. So for the good king, the blood of the little people, the forgotten people, the pushed aside people, it's precious. It is not to be spilled as a wanton ruler like Pilate does, but conserved and protected. This is the mark of the good king. Good king, bad king. Gets us to our gospel lesson, this guy named Herod. Herod's a family name. We meet four Herods in the New Testament. This guy, Herod the Great, is how he's usually referred to. Then Herod Antipas is around when Jesus is alive. And then Herod Agrippa I and II are, are characters that the Apostle Paul meets up with. Herod the Great is installed in his position by Caesar Augustus. The Romans liked to use local rulers where they could. But I think Herod was, or Augustus was, was smart enough to realize he was kind of uh, playing with fire by having Herod in place because Herod was brilliant. He's the one who rebuilds the Jerusalem temple. And, and, you know, if you've been to Jerusalem and seen the Wailing Wall, that's reputed to still be a part of that temple. It, it must have been a spectacular place. And so he was an extraordinary administrator. He was also, uh, paranoid and homicidal. He's, 
uh, known to have killed off several of his sons who he thought uh, were going to be threats to him. Uh, as a result, Augustus writes of Herod, you're better off being his pig. He pretended to be kosher, by the way. You're better off being his pig than one of his sons, which is kind of funny when you think about it. But if you didn't laugh, that's okay. So just laugh at the fact that you didn't laugh. That's, that's funny in itself. Uh, you're better off being one of his pigs because he watches kosher than one of his sons who he keeps killing off. This is Herod, even through Augustus's eyes, and Augustus was working, used to working with some kind of sketchy people. Uh, Herod was his own little case. You often wish that this story that we read this morning, I, I guess maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, what's verse 16 going to be? What happens in the verse right after where I stop? Herod sends his, his henchmen to Bethlehem and kills all the children under the age of two. Uh, and, and sadly, it isn't just, the, in the Greek, it's not just the boys, it's all the children. So anybody under age two, he's wiping them out so that they are not a threat to his throne. You have to be a special level of crazy to do something like that, and Herod was. Uh, that's not attested to in any other historical source. You kind of wish that, that maybe Matthew just made that up or put that in there for symbolic reasons. But sadly, from what we know of Herod, probably not. He probably did that. And so you get a sense of the, of the danger and, and evil into which Jesus comes because people into the world he was born in, people into the world in which we still live can be like Herod, good king, bad king, magi kings. So the Christmas carol or the epiphany song, We Three Kings of Orient are... There's actually absolutely nothing right about that song title. Uh, we three, uh, you know, it's three gifts that they bring. There's no indication of how many wise men there actually are. There could have been two, there could have been ten. Uh, kings, nope, they're magi. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, from Orient are, from the East. Um, could be, in the Greek, it's literally a 50-50 toss-up. Our translation said they were from the East. It could just as easily be they saw the star in the East, therefore they're coming from the West. So actually the way that song should be titled is, We Indeterminate Number of Magi from Someplace Are. Maybe that doesn't flow very well when you're trying to sing it, so we'll give creative license to the guy who wrote We Three Kings of Orient. It's still a good song. Uh, anyhow, so these magi show up. Magi is kind of almost an untranslatable word. A lot of times nowadays people say astrologer, but I think astrologers kind of get a rap in our world. And, and, and they were more than astrologers. So these, these magi are, are amazing, really. When you think about their skill set, they're astronomers watching the stars in the heavens. Uh, they have to be mathematicians because they, they relate the stars and their movements to their route, therefore they're also navigators. They're anthropologists, and see, this is the significant thing. In that world, everyone assumed, we, we don't assume this, but they all assumed that the movements of the heavens either reflected meaning in, in past events or foretold meaning in future events. Everyone just took that as a given. So in our world, astrologers kind of just look at the stars and, and think you can foretell the future. But the difference with the wise men is they understood 
some of the, the physics and math, math of the stars, and then they also would have been anthropologists. They would have been students of the human civilization and of different cultures, and they were constantly trying to relate what they saw, in a sense, mathematically in the stars with what cultures and what history was happening around them. And so in their minds, somehow they make this connection between what they see in the stars and the specific culture of the Jewish people in and around Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And oh, one last thing that was in their skill set, uh, they had to be multi-multilingual. I mean, they travel all of these distances, encounter all of these different people, and somehow found a way to communicate with them. Does anybody here have that skill set? Astronomer, mathematician, navigator, anthropologist, multilingual. Actually, last night we had one guy who talked to me after the service. He's, he's a pilot who flies international routes. And he said, I was, I was with you until you got to the multilingual part. And all I know is how to say fasten your seatbelts in like 10 languages. And he decided that did not qualify him as truly being multilingual. Um, anyhow, so these guys are amazing. Uh, scientists, but the awesome thing about the story, the awesome thing about the Magi, is with all of this learning and with all of this, in a sense, kind of moxie for getting along and, and traveling in a different, difficult world, when they finally get to Bethlehem, they're just, they, they don't just feel joy or the success of, you know, this, this mission they've been on having been succeeded. They're, they're overwhelmed with joy. These maybe, in a sense, kind of road-hardened veterans are overwhelmed with joy. And then when they behold the child, they pay him homage. They're just like you and me. They're just, they're just people who, when at the end of some quest, they... They are overcome by the emotion of the moment, and they, they share their best. They open their treasures and give to him their gold, their frankincense, their myrrh. And then, being warned in a dream, they depart by another road. And see, that's one of the main points of the story, right? I mean, if you actually encounter the Christ and, and he touches your heart, you can never stay on the same road. You're, you're never going to be the same person. Of course you're going to leave by another road. There's, in fact, no other option, really. And they left by another road. Good king, bad king, magi kings... Jesus King. Mark and John, two of the Gospels, don't have a Christmas story. Luke and Matthew do. What's extraordinarily striking about both of those Christmas stories is that in Luke, they're on the road. They're forced to be on the road by political circumstances beyond their control. And it's hard to even imagine how difficult it was for Mary to make a journey of that distance uh, in her situation and then to give birth in clearly less than ideal uh, surroundings. You may not, they may not technically have been refugees, but it was a tough way to have your first child. Matthew's gospel is almost uh, more 
explicit in a sense, where Mary and Joseph immediately do become political refugees, where the threat of Herod is such that, that Joseph has another dream. He was probably sick of having all these dreams. And this time the dream was you've got to get away. You've got to leave now because Herod's coming after this child. And so they literally become refugees who flee to Egypt and, and then they have no security. They never are able to return to Bethlehem. It's not a safe place to ever go back to. And so they leave that which is their home and in Matthew's gospel, journey to Nazareth, which is where Jesus will be raised. That story is 70 million people's story in our world right now. I mean, that's the estimate, that right now there are 70 million people, either because of, of, of natural disasters, wars, uh, political oppression, uh, famine, whatever it may be, 70 million people who have been forced to leave their homes, and in reality, most of them will never go back, and they will be forced to start a new life someplace else. And I think that's almost incomprehensible to us. I mean, if you can imagine your life right now, whatever it is, and if you had to leave it right now because the fire in Australia is going to track your house down and you better run now, and you may never be able to go back to that. What a vulnerable, terrifying, and perhaps embittering experience to have. And I think the Bible wants to make sure we do not miss that Jesus, good king that he is, good king that he is, understood throughout his entire ministry what Solomon was talking about in that psalm. That, of course, it is enticing to be sucked into the glory and majesty and power of all of the, the wealth and glitter of our world. But the real test of any leader and the real test actually of any of us as human beings is, is the blood of the little people, the forgotten people, the refugee people, is that precious in our sight? And it is we, will it be we, who regard it as precious enough that we help to protect it in its time of trauma. Christmas Eve is awesome. It's this little sanctuary, right? This little refuge. One wishes the Herods and Pilots of the worlds could never enter into it. But then there's the other 364 days of the year. I often hear and I understand and I, I sympathize with the fact that sometimes people say, man, I, I just want to come to church and have it be a sanctuary from, from all of that stuff that's going on out there. But we live in a, a scientific world, for example, and in Scripture, science is valued. I mean, those magi are appreciated for their knowledge. Uh, but, but science, if it gets unmoored from, from ethics and morality, that's not going to turn out well. You and I have to stay invested in stuff like that. Politics. People don't want to talk about politics. But if politics get, get separated from morality and ethics, that's not going to turn out well either. And, and so, of course, the people of God 
would love to stay in our sanctuary. But a new road lies ahead. All we can do is be overwhelmed with joy at the birth of a Savior and to open our treasure chests before him. And then you can't stay there. Nor can you go back by the route that you came. Good king. Bad king. Magi kings. Jesus king. Christmas is over. Which road do you take next?